Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A trial that attracted international attention just ended with a conviction for the man accused of murdering two Alaska Native women. Evidence included video of one of the murders, which heightened the tabloid appeal of the case. Experts and advocates for missing and murdered indigenous people say there's a more nuanced context that people should take into account with the trial. We'll hear from them right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In just a little over an hour Thursday, an Anchorage jury reached a guilty verdict in the trial of Brian Smith, accused of killing two Alaska Native women. They convicted Smith on all 14 counts in the deaths of Kathleen Jo Henry and Veronica Abouchuk. During the three-week trial, police and prosecutors showed how Smith preyed upon their vulnerabilities. They struggled with homelessness. In the final moments of the trial, the prosecution recapped scenes from videos and photos stored on an SD card which showed Henry being tortured. Police said someone found the card on the ground with the voice of a man in the footage with a thick South African accent, which police connected to Smith, who was under investigation in a different case. Debate over the memory card was a source of contention as well as the credibility of Valerie Kassler, the woman who gave it to police. During her testimony, she changed her story and said the footage actually came from a cell phone she stole from Smith's truck and copied to the SD card. Smith's attorney, Timothy Ayer, argued in closing statements that Kassler's testimony alone was enough to give the jury reasonable doubt. Whether she wanted the limelight, whether she wanted to hide something, whether she simply doesn't have a good memory, she is a very comfortable and constant liar, and there is reasonable doubt there. But the co-counsel for the prosecution, Heather Nabriga, asked the jury to consider the totality of the evidence, which also included cell phone data, text messages, and surveillance footage. What we do know is the defendant violently and brutally murdered two women. That is why we're here today. That is why the state is asking you to convict Mr. Smith of the crimes charged and that the state has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Smith sat stone-faced as the verdict was read, while families and advocates for the victims cried and embraced each other. They said they hoped their presence would send a message of strength and caring, but most importantly of all, to bring justice. In Modoc County, Northern California, Jarrett Rucker, a non-Native man, is on trial, accused of the killing of Pitt River tribal member Milton Patrick McGarva, who was found stabbed to death in his home in 2020. Rucker is charged with first-degree murder. As Frank Sterling reports, advocates for missing and murdered Indigenous people say this is an important case. The trial began with Prosecutor Barton Bowers revealing that Milton McGarva, Yogi as he was known, and Jarrett Rutger were in a romantic relationship and had been living together in McGarva's rural home for approximately two years before Yogi was killed. Bowers also described the scene of the killing as brutal. Numerous witnesses were called, including first responders and McGarva's family. His family painfully recalled the tragedy, saying McGarva had just pulled through some serious health challenges Russell Margava is one of Yogi's brothers. He had 13 different surgeries, and I mean, he made it through it, you know, and to, to be taken the way he was from us, 
It's just not right. Geraldine McGarva, Yogi's sister, says he was a community-oriented man and loved to help out. Fun-loving guy that made everybody laugh when he was around. We all laughed and joked and kidded with each other. He helped everybody out. Advocate Morningstar Gali of the organization Indigenous Justice says this is an important case for Native people. There has actually been charges put forward um, in terms of a non-Native individual against a tribal member is something that's unheard of out here and something that's really significant in our seek for, for justice for the families and for all cases. These cases, uh, the majority of them never actually make it to this point that go to trial. The trial is expected to wrap up next week with the testimony of the medical examiner and closing arguments by the attorneys before the case is turned over to the jury. That was Frank Sterling and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Brian Stephen Smith is guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and a dozen other charges in the deaths of two Alaska Native women. The jury handed down the verdict late yesterday after a two-week trial, which included showing a particularly disturbing video the killer recorded of one of the murders. The hero of the case is another Alaska Native woman who took a cell phone that included that video. Details of the case and attention it's getting around the world is reviving concern over the ongoing imbalance that Alaska Native women confront when it comes to violent crime. Today we'll aim to put the trial in context of the larger picture of the missing and murdered Indigenous people crisis in that state, what's being done, and what still needs to be done. Later this hour, we'll also discuss the death of a Choctaw teenager in Oklahoma following a fight at their school. You can join our conversation. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. Speaking with us now from Wasilla, Alaska, is Antonia Unaksuk-Komak. She is an MMIW activist who has been following the trial. She is a Nupiak from the native village of Shungnak. Good morning, Antonia. Appreciate you joining us again. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Sean. From Anchorage, Alaska, on Denina land, we have Michael Livingston. He is a retired police officer serving in both rural and urban Alaska settings. He is Onungak. Hello and good morning to you as well, Mike. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, folks, I wish we were uh, talking under happier circumstances, but of course uh, the trial concluded Yesterday, it was held in Anchorage. Antonia, let's begin with you. When did you first get involved with the case? 
before it went on to trial, and I was shocked because um, this this trial actually did have a lot of media coverage when it started back in um, 2019. So directly after that, I started following it from day one, and I listened in every single day of trial. Now, I understand you've been critical of how some of the people involved in the trial, specifically the two victims and one of the key witnesses, have been portrayed by the media. How could the reporting have been better? You know, yeah, I, I was very critical, and I, I continue to be, and I will be until they fix it. Um, the way that they're portraying the victims is they're further criminalizing them after death for the choices that they made before they died. Um, I always say that no matter what anybody did in life, they don't deserve to be talked about that way after death. And also the woman who found the SD card, they're continuing to say things about her, like her being houseless or her being a S worker and just things like that. They're not talking about her in the sense that she is a hero. She stole this phone, even though it was a crime. But she saved many other women from meeting the same demise that Veronica and Kathleen did. Antonia, in your experience, is it common for Alaska Native women, specifically uh, who are victims of crime, to be portrayed in this light by the media? Or is this a, a new occurrence? No, it's been happening. It, it's just how we're always talked about in the media. They continue to perpetuate stereotypes about Alaska Native women. And they're not realizing that they're, I don't know if they're not realizing they're doing it, but it's harmful to the whole Alaska Native population. And it's not something new. Now, were there any media outlets that you felt did a, a fair and uh, honest job of reporting sensitively regarding all the factors of the case? No. Hmm. Jeez, I mean, this is something that people all over the country watched uh, on court TV and other sources. Uh, it was just readily available. And Antonio, what do you want people to know and understand uh, who outside of Anchorage, outside of the courtroom, outside of watching the videos that, that they just aren't able to glean from being as closely connected as the case as you are? Um, the the MMIW crisis in Alaska is it's it's a it's a huge problem and i know it's a huge problem all over the country but specifically in alaska we don't have our own tribal courts we don't have our own tribal police and we we rely on the state to get justice and this case made it to trial and that is very rare this never happens for us which is why this trial was such a huge deal for alaska mmiw and what is it about so many of those other cases that don't make the trial? Do they just not have the evidence like you described? Uh, the woman, the hero who stepped forward and stole that cell phone, had that critical evidence documented like that? Yeah, um, I guarantee you if she had not stolen that phone, if she had not turned in that video to the Anchorage Police Department, nothing would have been done. Um, mm. The the issue is with a lot of Alaska MMIW, the investigations often don't even start or they're um, shut down after a day or two. Now, Antonia, I know you've talked to the families. Uh, what are they saying to you specifically? Comfortable sharing on the air? Sure. Um, yeah, I was. I did the days that I was there and the days that I was home. I, I've been in contact with them since I started talking about this. They found my social media. Um, yesterday, specifically, Almost every single one of them told me that they didn't want to talk to the media 
And it was because of the way that they were portraying their family members and they did not like it. And I just, I told them, it's your right not to speak to them. And if you choose to, you can be very clear about the way you want them to talk about your family member or don't talk about her at all. What about uh, their sense of justice? Do they feel, are they satisfied with the verdict and uh, going forward? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, You could feel the weight lifted off of their shoulders after we were hearing the guilty 14 times over and over and over. It was just a huge sigh of relief. And Veronica's sister told me she feels like a huge weight was lifted off of her shoulders. She feels like she can finally grieve now and put her sister to rest. And I've been through that twice with uh, both of my best friends, and it is a huge relief. And it, it's, it feels like you're starting your life over again because this it consumes you from the moment that your family member died until you hear that guilty. Now, Antonia, a murder trial, I mean, it's always going to involve disturbing details, painful details. But what's so over the top in this case is the jury saw an actual video of one of the murders being committed. I mean, what was that like in the courtroom? And geez, I can't even imagine what that would have, what that experience would be like. You know, that I was there in the courtroom that day when they were showing the video to the jurors. They had the screen turned around so we couldn't see it, but we heard it. Um, and I was keeping my eye on Brian Stephen Smith and the jury, and you, you could just see their utter shock. And I, I truly hope that those jurors are going to be okay and seek therapy because I'm talking to my therapist about it, and I didn't even watch it. Um it's shocking. I've I've watched so many trials, and you don't have this level of evidence presented in court. Were there any other moments during the trial that really stood out for you? Um, then again, when they showed the videos of Veronica and Brian Stephen Smith's home, it was another instance like that where we were, they were watching the videos of Kathleen. Um, it was just utter shock. Like, we just couldn't believe our eyes. It was almost... It was almost like a dream. Like, am I really seeing this? But, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like a, like a movie or something. You know, one of these just over the top. Jeez, uh, jeez, yeah. Antonia. If, just, if it wasn't true, you would feel like you were making it up, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the verdict uh, and just how it uh, relates to the to the justice system in general in Alaska. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, Alaska Native people, especially women, disproportionately targeted for for violence and crimes. And I mean, going forward, do you think uh, this could perhaps start kind of changing that imbalance uh, with future uh, issues there with Alaska Native people? You know, I truly, truly hope so. I have hopes, but I've often been shut down in that area. Um, That is why this case was so important to me. It is a stepping stone for Alaska MMIW to get justice because the entire world is watching. The entire world is going to hear about this issue that we have here in Alaska now because this has so much uh, media attention. Brian Smith, the defendant found guilty on all counts by the jury. Uh, as I understand it, uh, he's facing uh, a life in prison sentence. How do people feel about that? Uh, life in prison, is, is that uh, in terms of the punishment there, the conviction? The, um, Alaska does not have 
the death sentence. So that is the highest possible sentence he can get in Alaska. And because he was convicted of the substantial torture charge, he does have a mandatory minimum of 99 years for the death of Kathleen Henry. He has not been sentenced yet for Veronica Bochek's murder, so he could possibly have two life sentences. But I personally don't feel like that's enough, but we do not have the death sentence here in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Antonio, what do you do now? The trial's over. Do you have plans to do any follow-up? I I was wondering what I do now yesterday. You know, this this trial consumed me for the last couple of weeks, and um, I think I'm just going to take some time off to process everything and then figure out how to go forward from there. Um, I was contacted by a guy that's doing a documentary about this, but I don't have any plans right now with what I'm going to do with everything that I heard the last couple of weeks. I am going to continue my advocacy for MMIW, though. Well, Antonia, thanks again for joining us, and uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to to not only the families but everybody there, all the Native people in Alaska who have been hurt by this uh, so much. Really appreciate it, and take care of yourself. All right. Thank you, Sean. You bet. You bet. Folks, this is a tough topic today here on Native America Calling, and uh, we always encourage our, our listeners to also be mindful of your own health and well-being. Uh, The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a national helpline that you can call anytime. The number is 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. If you you feel like you need someone to talk to or you just want to kind of just sort through some of this, that's uh, a resource that's available for you. So uh, please, again, be mindful of your own mental health when we talk about challenging topics on our show. Short break, and we will be right back. Brian Jackson is known as both the Hurricane and the I Believe Guy. He holds more than a dozen world records. His passion for accomplishment is part of an internal drive he developed after a time going down the wrong path. We'll hear about his remarkable feats and his journey to heal himself on the next Native America Calling. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at savehistory. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. We're talking about a murder trial in Alaska that has captured mainstream media coverage across the globe. Coverage that can be problematic for Alaska Native communities and individuals who are disproportionately victimized by violence. Call in with your questions and comments. We're at 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Let's talk now with Michael Livingston, our next guest. And... Michael, uh, thank you again for joining us. As we shared earlier, you were a police officer for almost three decades. Do you have a sense of why this trial got so much attention outside of Alaska? Uh, thanks for the question, Sean. I, I, I'd just like to begin by by saying um, 
my heart is, is filled with sorrow for the families and, and the loss of these two women. Uh, it's, it's really senseless. And uh, just want to extend my condolences to the family. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, Michael. Uh, and and I, have, I have admiration for, for people like Antonia and the family that was able to sit through three weeks. I, I did stop by uh, the trial for a few times. It, it was really intense. And I've got uh, absolute admiration for, for Antonia and, and the other people that, and the reporters that, that uh, did their job to get the information out to them, out to us, out to the public. Uh, the reason that it garnered so much attention is, is because it was recorded. And, uh, you know, that um, the recordings, uh, the video recordings, as, as horrible as it was for the jury to, to listen to and watch, uh, my heart also goes out to the jurors that, that had to sit through, uh, serve, do their civic duty and sit through that. Um, Mike, so, you, yeah, that, go, do go you ahead. agree with Antonia that uh, had that video not been admitted as evidence in court that uh, there wouldn't have been a conviction? I do. Uh, well, I, I know that it played a, a really important part. That was certainly certainly was helpful for the jury, uh, as painful as it was to watch that, to to uh, to be able to see uh, um, what went on, that was that was certainly, I'm sure, helpful for the jury. Mm-hmm. Now, people outside of Alaska, um, do you think they have the same understanding of why Alaska Native people are disproportionately affected by violent crime? I mean, Antonia touched on this a little bit, but you, with your experience in law enforcement, I mean, what do you think's going on there? That disconnect. Well, until you've actually been to Alaska, uh, you know, I, I've lived and worked in Anchorage on Denina lands for 40 years, but I was raised in rural Alaska. Until you've traveled out to uh, to some of the smaller villages and seen some of the challenges out there in terms of the high cost of tickets, you know, uh, typically 1000 to $2,000 to get to some of our villages. And then once you're in our villages, the high cost of food and fuel and electricity and Internet uh, you, you just have no appreciation for that. And then, too, um, uh, the, the racism against Alaska Natives has been, uh, in the past, in the early 1900s, it was blatant in-your-face racism. It's still here. It's just it's just more undercover. Uh, you don't see it until, uh, until portrayals uh, of the stereotypes like Antonia mentioned. Uh, uh, can, can you see some, some of that ugliness? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about that, that racism, the systemic racism, Mike. And I think what's interesting, and, and we can share this with our listeners, is you actually give presentations about the factors that contribute to crime and, and how it impacts Alaska Native people. And you take a historical approach. Uh, for you, what is the origin of the crimes that were just on trial this week? Does it date back to European colonization in the 1700s or Russian colonization? What are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks. I, I do give a presentation called uh, Serial Killers in Alaska, How Bob Hansen Got Away with Murder, uh, 1971 to 1983. And in that presentation, I do present the historical context back to uh, 1741 when Europeans first arrived. And I've tracked down their diaries and very carefully read their journals. And it's really uh, clear that, that the intentions of the 80 men on board the St. Peter that was uh, captained by uh, Vitus Bering was to was to uh, to kill the they didn't know that it was Alaska Natives they called the people Americans but they they wanted to kill 
the American men and kidnap the American women. And they wanted to do this so badly that Captain Commander Vitus Bering had to give them written orders, do not kidnap and do not kill. And that theme uh, that began uh, was well documented in 1741, continued uh, 1745 on Attu Island. It's, it's captured in the geographical place names uh, like uh, names like Murder Point, Massacre Bay, Massacre Beach, Massacre Valley East, Massacre Valley West, and Krasny Point. Krasny is the Russian word for red. The, the blood of the ocean water off that point was so red from the, the blood of Alaska Native people that they renamed it Krasny Point. So that theme uh, of uh, dehumanization of calling people savages uh, continues from 1741 right up to 2024, as we tragically saw in the trial this week. Now, Mike, the title of your presentation, Serial Killers in Alaska, and that term serial killer, uh, it has been used uh, in reference with with Brian Smith. And I want to hear your thoughts. Do you consider Brian Smith, uh, is he a serial killer? Is that title apt? Well, the the definition of serial killer that I use is, is from the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and they define it as uh, three or more killings with a uh, at least a one-month cooling-off period in, in between. Uh, so um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, from what I know, there's been at least two uh, confirmed homicides that, uh, that he's been convicted of now. So uh, I don't know whether or not there might be a third one out there. And again, there has to be a month uh, or cooling off time in between. Uh, The definition of serial killer contrasts with the definition of mass killer, which is more people in a shorter time. All right. Antonio, back to you. Uh, In any of your research, uh, is Brian Smith connected possibly to any other additional homicides? But besides the two he was just convicted of yesterday. Um, Of course, we can't say for sure until the police charge him with another crime, but I kept getting hints that the prosecution was trying to paint a a picture of him targeting vulnerable women, and the defense kept shutting that argument down. Um, Towards the end, after he was convicted, the prosecutor did say that she plans to present more witnesses and evidence at his sentencing hearing. So I don't know what that means, but I'm curious to find out in July. All right. Thanks, Antonia. Mike, back to you. Um, Let's talk more about this dehumanization of Alaska natives as you see it. And do you consider that also a factor in the traditional elements of crime that law enforcement officials point to? Issues like poverty, perhaps, or substance abuse, or or lack of stability within families? Uh, Yes. So uh, that theme that I mentioned that began in 1741, after the United States purchased Alaska in 1867, that theme basically continued. Uh, We're familiar with phrases, uh, you know, like um, uh, uh, spare the child and kill the Indian kind of thing. A lot of animosity against Native Americans and Alaska Natives. And uh, it continued um, into into the 1900s. Um, uh, the United States Marshals provided uh, law enforcement Alaska, and there's a quote from from a marshal that served in the Shumigan Islands in 1944 that he didn't have time or money to investigate homicides, but yet he had time and money to to put Alaska natives in jail on lesser offenses. And uh, there's similar quotes from other law enforcement offers, uh, officials, and they continued through the through the trial of the of Bob Hansen, one of Alaska's most serial killers. In terms of the district attorney not having time to assist the Alaska State Troopers uh, to with a with an affidavit for a search warrant for Bob Hansen's house here in Anchorage. 
Mike, I mean, this is just so disturbing listening to both you and Antonia and just these long, long, you know, this history of systemic racism and other issues. I mean, going forward, uh, you know, the trial, there was the conviction yesterday. What would you like to see going forward with regard to just how to improve these unequal statistics that uh, you just can't avoid or ignore, I should say? I'm sorry. Yeah, so I think I think an acknowledgement of the of the racism needs to occur. Uh, the acknowledgement of acronyms used by police officers uh, in the nineteen nineteen eighties, that acronym being NHI, no humans involved. So when a patrol officer rolls up a scene to a scene of a of a deceased person, the patrol officer might use the acronym NHI, indicating uh, that. Uh, that that there are no humans involved. We're not going to spend any time or resources investigating this crime. And, uh, you know, that uh, unfortunately that, uh, that, that acronym is often applied to people of low socioeconomic status, people who might have alcohol challenges or drug, uh, drug challenges or people that are, are uh, victims of, of human trafficking. So I think an, a clear acknowledgement of that needs to occur and so that future law enforcement officers in Alaska, whether they're trained at the Alaska State Trooper Academy in Sitka or the Anchorage Police Department Academy in Anchorage or the uh, Fairbanks Academy with the University of Alaska, need to, to be up front and to say, this is the way it's been in the past. We need to make sure that, that no police officers are, are in the future and are involved in that. When, when police officers raise their right hand and swear to abide by the law enforcement code of ethics, which says my fundamental duty is to serve all human beings, and my my uh, fundamental duty is to safeguard all human lives. That it applies to all human beings, and not not just wealthy uh, human beings uh, who's uh, who uh, have strong, powerful political connections. Mike, you were uh, you were law enforcement in in Alaska for 27 years, and uh, just listening to you now, I mean, you sound just like a very empathetic person. You sound like somebody um, who would have had a tough time dealing with some of these issues, especially some of these systemic issues with law enforcement. How did you manage all those years? Well, you know, it's 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 not easy. It it is a it is difficult. Um, uh, uh, you know, historically, law enforcement Alaska has has been racist in the sense that in the 1930s and 1940s, if you weren't six foot tall and male and uh, had blonde hair and blue eyes, you weren't going to be hired as a police officer. And so uh, fortunately, over the years, that has changed. There are more and more uh, officers of color. There are more and more female police officers. And so uh, things are getting better. There's there's a long way to go. But um, but, uh, you know, I, I am encouraged despite the darkness that we saw over the past few weeks, uh, uh, things are getting better. And, and I think this case is going to help things get better because people are able to see uh, what exactly goes on. Let's also talk about just some geography here. And Alaska, of course, is just an enormous state. There are, are so many square miles to cover and only so many law enforcement personnel to do that. And I've been to some of the, the villages there in Alaska where there's no law enforcement. And if there is an issue, they have to fly them in from Anchorage or, or some other hub. And uh, what about just the lack of personnel uh, to adequately patrol these communities and, and 
how big a factor is that? And what would it take to, to change some of that, Mike, and just uh, have enough law enforcement personnel to serve the needs of, of Alaska's communities? Yeah, great question. I, I've worked in, in rural Alaska for small police departments, and it is a real challenge. I can tell you that the, the VPSO program, the Alaska Village Public Safety Officer Program, is, is really good. They, they do incredible work. Uh, they're, they're not only basically police officers, but they're also firefighters and diver rescue specialists and, uh, and search and rescue specialists and uh, EMS specialists. Uh, so I think that's that's a part of the solution is, is more VPSOs in our villages. And uh, um, yeah, there are, are some villages, unfortunately, that, that don't meet those high standards, uh, that they tragically have uh, people doing police work that have bad, bad convictions. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be nice to do away with those. But to, to answer your question directly, it, it's going to take more funding and more innovative uh, thinking, more involvement uh, from Alaska Native corporations uh, and and. I'm not saying that in a negative way. They've, the, the corporations have been doing wonderful work, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue it. Mike, Antonia also mentioned uh, this tendency for Alaska Native people to be viewed or connected to behaviors that might put themselves at risk, and, and it certainly came out with the trial uh, over the last two weeks. What about training or instruction to to better inform and make law enforcement and others perhaps just more understanding of the humanization and just these victims of crime and is are there any efforts that you see with regard to just better sensitivity training yes um the standards for alaska police officers uh is set by the alaska police standards council and if citizens of alaska believe that 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 training should be modified uh, they can follow a process and i know that there's wonderful people like dr uh Charlene Octic and uh, the, uh, uh, with the groups that have been met, been meeting with the Commissioner of Public Safety, uh, James Cockrell, and uh, are, are starting to get things changed. But uh, uh, I've attended the training in Sitka, the, the State Trooper Academy. It's an excellent academy, but it would, it would be uh, nice to see more Alaska Native history integrated into that. The most recent academy I attended was, was last January. Uh, there was 31 officers there. I was the only one from Alaska. All the other officers were from the lower 48. And really great officers, but don't know anything about Alaska history, about Alaska Natives. And it would be nice to see uh, some of the history uh, integrated so that um, future police officers are more more uh, respectful. Antonia, back to you. Um, what types of things would you like to see to improve these statistics we're talking about today? Um, definitely want to add on to the the training for officers. There is actually a bill that um, hopefully will address that, and it is, I think, HB 234 or 235. Um, I, I do feel like the problem does stem a lot from the law enforcement, and it is because they're not educated. Whether they're naive or, you know, choosing to be racist, it needs to be addressed. And until um, Commissioner James Cockrell acknowledges that his law enforcement is part of the problem, this isn't going to get anywhere. And Antonia, the whole uh, larger movement of MMIW, how do you feel that's moving along there in Alaska at the state level? I mean, are you happy with just the overall, not only just the awareness, but actually, you know, boots on the ground type of results? 
Um, I'm always going to say I wish there was more that could be done. I wish that there was more people speaking up, but it's it's gotten better. I started speaking about this in 2017, and it, ha- ha- it has gotten so much better. I will say that. All right. And better how? Like just more people are, are, are paying attention? Are, are you seeing more funding? Are you seeing more programs? What exactly? Yes to all of Yes to all of that, because more people are talking about it. It is in the media. You see um, MMIW being talked about on shows like um, the Night Country ones. Um, there was the Alaska Daily. Um, you know, there, there's just large mainstream media speaking about it and also the television shows. We're going to take another break. Uh, sure would like to get some calls going, especially anybody in Alaska. Uh, if you're in Anchorage, if you're in Fairbanks, if you're in any of the villages, uh, hope you're listening to the show today, and please give us a call. Let us know your thoughts, your perspectives on what we're talking about today. 1-800-996-2848. The number again, 1-800-996-2848. We've got open phone lines. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We appreciate you tuning in to Native America Calling today. We've been hearing about a murder trial in Alaska that involved two Alaska Native victims. And in just a moment... We'll hear about violence that claimed the life of a transgender child in Oklahoma who was also Choctaw. Call us with questions and comments at 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to introduce our next guest, our third guest. Uh, Joining us from Oklahoma City is Sarah McAdams. Sarah is Two-Spirit. Uh, the co-founder of Matriarch and the founder of Cousins, and also a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Hello, Sarah. I know you've been on the show before. Welcome back, although I do wish it was under better circumstances. Lito, Sean. Yes, me too. I'm uh, glad to talk to you today, but um, so sad about the topic Halito to you as well. I <laughs> I like that greeting. I always remember it whenever I'm in Choctaw country. Well, Sarah, here's what we know so far of the case. Uh, 16-year-old Nex Benedict referred to themselves as gender expansive. They were involved in a fight at their school two weeks ago. Nex died the following day. Police say trauma was not a cause of death, but they are waiting on the results of other tests News reports say uh, Nex was bullied at school. However, right now the public does not know what prompted the fight, and we don't know if it is directly related to the teen's death. So with that, given all that we know, Sarah, and what we don't know, what is the discussion currently focused on with regard to Nex Benedict's death? Yeah, Um, it's a tragedy, first of all. We are suffering an incredible loss in our community uh, to lose our young relatives, Um, we're feeling that deeply right now in our community and are um, really trying to um, prioritize remembering um, and uh, supporting uh, Nexus family, remembering Nex, um, talking about Nex's life, um, and also uh, talking a lot about 
Um, so many of the bills that have been passed in the state of Oklahoma that have been aimed um, at um, gender nonconforming to us LGBTQ kids in our state. And we know that our kids have very few rights here and they depend on us um, to protect them and to watch out for them. And so these discussions about seeing more bills this legislative session in Oklahoma than ever before that attack our 2SLGBTQ kids is, is uh, really at the top of the lists right now. Um, this, this is a direct result in my mind of that rhetoric, of those policies, um, and it's devastating. It really is, Sarah. And let's talk a little bit more about uh, the state of Oklahoma. It leads the nation in anti-trans legislation. Uh, apparently, the school that Next went to had a bathroom policy that forced students to use a bathroom that aligned with their gender at birth. How do those uh, How do those laws and those policy factor in here? They absolutely um, create situations like what we saw, this tragedy that happened in Owasso, um, when children have to uh, have to go into bathrooms that don't match their gender identity, um, and then there are laws created around that to, um, you know, the rhetoric is that they're protecting people from uh, gender nonconforming folk. We see that the gender nonconforming uh, relatives actually are the ones who need the protection. And so, uh, it really is this, uh, you know, how much more proof do we need? How much, how much, you know, how many more deaths have to happen for our legislators to understand that this is harmful, that they are not actually reducing harm, they're increasing harm uh, for a very, very vulnerable population. Um, and uh, And we always know, too, that when we're talking about um, gender nonconforming people. We also know that when they're um, people from oppressed communities or people of of color, that those rates are even higher. And so we have uh, this crisis, um, which also attaches to MMIP, right? Like this is a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it it has really, really, I hope, in the very worst way. I hate that it takes this, but opened eyes. Right, right. And Sarah, you know, I, I can't help but draw parallels between Nex and George Floyd and how sadly and tragically George Floyd became, uh, you, you know, it became the catalyst for change and for people to finally pay attention. And do you feel like that could be an opportunity here um, with Nex's death? It is. Yeah, we're seeing so much organizing that's happening around first Uh, mobilizing to support our families, support the Nexus family to support our uh, gender nonconforming trans uh, relatives. Um, And I absolutely, you know, just like anybody from, I'm sure, George Floyd's family as well, we don't want Next to have to be this, (laughs) you know, Next was a child. You know, we don't want them to have to be this champion for these things in death. And and that's one of the things is, you know, I've had conversations with my indigenous sisters about how, you know, yes, this has sparked an incredible movement towards something, hopefully better, 
but that we're never going to get next back. Like that is never going to be a thing. And um, I wish we could do this work without having to have children sacrificed for it. Like that feels like a, we need a better way. It's a travesty. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, the, the LGBTQ and two spirit community there in Oklahoma, do they trust police right now to get answers in this investigation or pursue justice adequately? Well, I, I certainly can't speak for the whole community, but I know that I have uh, I have never um, relied on police for protection. That is not something as a, an indigenous woman uh, or a two spirit person that I've ever um, I've ever done, and so it, it certainly um, it, nor nor you know state or federal governments, you know, they have not ever been here to protect us. Um, and, you know, I think actions speak louder than words. You know, we hear a lot of rhetoric about making sure that our children are safe, we're protecting vulnerable populations, but then we see this happen, you know, um, actions are loud. And, uh, you know, I'm not here for rhetoric. I'm here for systemic change. And so I know that that has been my experience and I hope someday that will change, but it, I, what I believe in is I'm, I don't think that our politicians or our police or our governments are going to protect us. I think our community is going to protect us. The community has always filled the gaps that have been left um, for us to fall through and sometimes um, on purpose. And, and so I, I believe in our community. That's, that's what's going to get us where we need to be. And how does the community do that? How do communities reduce bullying and harassment such as what Nex experienced? It's a great question. And it's, it's more simple than you think. Uh, we create spaces for, um, for our communities who are experiencing um, this kind of attack to gather to uh, learn tools for their uh, mental wellness, to learn how to advocate for themselves, to learn how to um, tell their stories, and ultimately places where they can find joy, creating places where, I'll tell you kind of a, a funny story, um, Kendra Wilson Clements, um, another Choctaw Two-Spirit um, friend and sister of mine, we co-created Matriarch uh, for Indigenous Women, Two-Spirit, Non-Binary People, but then within that, Cousins has kind of come up under as a, we fiscally sponsor Cousins through Matriarch. And when we, you know, saw this great need for this support system for our indigenous to us LGBTQ uh, youth, you know, we had these grand ideas. You know, we were going to teach them about, you know, tribal sovereignty and we were going to talk about Indian law and we were going to do all these things. And <laughs> they came to us and they were like, can we play ping pong and eat pizza? You know, it was like, Oh, you know, these, these, uh, and, and that's it. You know, they need places for joy. They need places where, and we all need places where we don't have to code switch, where we don't have to explain what our pronouns are, where we don't have to look behind our back to see, who's listening before we, you know, share a story, we need safety and we need joy. And those things are absolutely uh, easy to accomplish in our communities. It really takes a space. It takes some good leadership. 
it takes some people willing to kind of pitch in and create that space. And that's how we do it. And it's not rocket science. It's not, it's, it's the way of our ancestors. You gather space, you make it safe, you feed them, right? You, you always bring food. And, and that, that is always medicine. That is always healing uh, to be in those spaces. And that's what I hope we will see spring up in abundance from our community are these, these spaces. And Cousins is one of them. And we want people in Oklahoma, anybody in Oklahoma who's listening, if you have a child who uh, needs that kind of space, we want to offer that. We, um, we love your kids. We want safety for your kids. We'll go to bat for your kids. And they don't, they, they don't deserve to not live a full life. Now, we've talked about some of the issues uh, facing uh, the state of Oklahoma. Sarah, what about other states? Uh, what states are, are you happier with with regard to how they're approaching policies related to non-binary issues? Yeah, well, any states where I see codification happen, when I see that they have, you know, Oklahoma has this, we just banned gender-affirming care for minors. You know, this, this thing that in my family for one of my kids was life-saving, gender-affirming care to be able to, to have that uh, was, and I'm, I'm not kidding when I say it's life-saving, like that is not an overstatement. And so states that offer that where you have access to health care, like, you know, that, that's a basic need um, that isn't being fulfilled here. So, so states who, who offer that, who protect that, I always see as, um, you know, there, we have lots of people moving to those states. Um, one of our doctors moved to uh, one of those states so that they could practice. And, um, and whenever we see things like gender-neutral bathrooms, um, we were just at a two-spirit powwow in um, San Francisco that the Bates group put on, which was incredible. And we took all the, co- the cousins group there with us. And it was so incredibly encouraging to see an indigenous community embrace all of these things and how it, it didn't seem like a, a big lift, you know, just saying this is a, a bathroom for everybody. And there right. was safety in that. And there was, <laughs> and even like in, you know, and I know this is, there are a lot of feelings about this, but like whenever we're doing our, you know, when we're contesting and, you know, there was no gendering of like, um, women's fancy or, you know, all of these things, like they, it was just fancy dance or, um, or fancy with a bustle or whatever it is. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing to see. And so I hope we see more of those spaces open up. Sarah, I, I was in, I flew through the Kansas city airport, uh, the new expanded Kansas city airport in December, and they have gender neutral bathrooms there. And I will tell you, that was the very first time in my entire life that I have ever been in a gender neutral bathroom. And it was so chill. It was just like, it just completely, it was nothing weird about it. You just went in and you know, it was the way it was set up. Um, what, what's your thought on that? I mean, cause you know, you, you hear the arguments, right? Oh, this and that, and this and that, but, um, like maybe if people just experience some of this stuff, what's your thought? Absolutely. Well, I think that there's a reason people feel this way, right? Whenever, you know, we, we heard about the gay community back in the eighties, seventies, sixties, they were talked about like pedophiles, right? Like this, this 
automatic um, uh, crime or or whatever was placed upon, very wrongly placed upon um, that community. And I think that there is this enduring memory and these stereotypes that follow um, many different oppressed communities that that are just lingering. And I think if they do have those experiences like you've had or like I've had where you go to gender-neutral bathrooms, you go, oh, this is different, but it's no big deal. Like, just wash your hands, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. – that's it, it's, it's low lift. And while I get that it might seem different, it's life-saving. It can save lives. And um, I'm, I'm so hopeful that people will have those experiences or – or Nexus experience will also make people think twice about how much privilege they have to just go into a bathroom and not even think about it. Like I have to have conversations with my kid about which bathroom is safer. That shouldn't have to happen. What are your kids telling you about uh, this tragedy that just occurred? difficult, right? Like there's been a lot of shutdown. It feels like um, I haven't pushed a lot. Um, We have kind of these conversations where you can just see um, the main words that I hear are uh, fear. There's a lot of fear around it. There's a lot of sadness around it. I've talked to many of the, to my kid and many of the cousins members and they're just, um, they just can't believe what's happened. They can't believe that this is something that can happen um, and how it makes them afraid, you know, that what, you know, if this is something that, you know, the, the police or the school or whomever is going to um, scapegoat and say, oh, this absolutely had nothing to do with Nex's uh, gender identity or this had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they were beat. You know, if there is no accountability in this, it doesn't give them hope. We have to tell the truth. We have to be thorough. And we back Nexus family up in asking for a a swift and a full and a fair investigation. We're going to have to wrap up the show now. Appreciate all of our guests who joined us. And we will be back on Monday. We have an inspiring guest who holds more than a dozen world records. His achievements helped him rebound from a path of drugs and scrapes with the law. I want to give a shout out to all of our staff here at Native America Calling, as well as our parent company in Anchorage, Alaska, Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation, for another wonderful week of content and programming for you, our Native listeners. Thank you again. Have a great weekend. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from NativeScreenPrinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Cachet. February is American Heart Month. Protect your heart by eating healthy, staying active, and managing stress. 
Heart disease can run in families, so talk with elders about your family history. For more information, contact your local Indian health care provider, visit healthcare.gov, or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. El Aqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.